This week on the Back Table Podcast. And I think those sort of elective diagnostic angiogram cases are actually a good place to start with getting comfortable yeah. with continuous drips or doing double flushes, you know, all the sort of really good meticulous techniques, um, it, it, not only for the practitioner, but for the staff as well, you know, getting them very comfortable that, hey, there can't be any bubbles in this line or in this syringe. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's podcast with Backtable, your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. As a reminder to our listeners, our app is free to download on the iTunes store or you can find us at backtable.com. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. Today I'm excited to welcome Benu Vadlamudi and Sabine Don to discuss their experiences in neurointerventional radiology. Now, both of you are, are performing really exciting and complex neurointerventions but you took different routes to this sector of our specialty. So I thought we'd begin with some introductions, starting with you, Vinu. Tell us where you are and how you got there and what this element of your practice looks like currently. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for, for having me on. Um, you know, I think this is a great, great format to disseminate um, information and just share practice patterns and practice building ideas. Uh, so uh, I did a kind of an unusual route um, to get to neurointerventional and also body interventional uh, the body IR side of things was much more typical where I did a residency in diagnostic radiology at Michigan State University and then a one-year body IR fellowship at uh, William Beaumont Hospital in the Detroit area. And following my body IR fellowship, I immediately went into, uh, in essence, the senior year of a neurointerventional fellowship at University of Michigan. Um, part of the way I was able to sort of bypass quite a quite a number of years of training was having done a lot of neurointerventional procedures, both during my residency as well as during my body IR fellowship. Uh, so that was sort of one of the routes of saving that junior year of neurointerventional training. The other thing was that the guys at University of Michigan, which you know were great to great to um, work with, uh, they in essence gave me a pass and said, "No, we're not going to require you to do." a year of diagnostic neuroradiology. I wasn't necessarily completely opposed to it, but I didn't feel that was necessarily going to add additional value. And certainly it uh, was an additional year of time of training. Uh, so it was nice to be able to bypass that. So that was my more unusual route to end up doing both neurointerventional and body interventional training. Uh, after my neurointerventional fellowship, I joined a practice in Alexandria, Virginia, where I've been since 2014 where I practice both neurointerventional and body interventional, probably about a sort of 20% neurointerventional, 80% body interventional sort of split um, on average. So that's sort of my background. And mainly what kind of neurointerventional procedures are you performing like in a given week or month? So, you know, in our practice, there's um, seven IRs total. Uh, and, you know, the, the practice has, you know, a lot of unique elements. Um, for example, the practice has been providing stroke services starting with, you know, intraarterial urokinase uh, back in 2000. So I think that's their very first stroke interventional case that they performed in this practice. So coming on board when it came to things like ischemic stroke, uh, it was good in a sense that I wasn't the only person to do it or offer it. Other senior partners who had been doing it and have a lot of experience doing it, and frankly, even having done a formal fellowship, plenty of things to learn from, you know, senior guys like that. But because we have a big enough section of IRs, they now funnel things like whether it's diagnostic cerebral angiography, stroke or AVM or 
aneurysm interventions, um, a lot of that gets funneled my way. Of course, the stroke side of things, that comes when it comes. You know, it's like any emergency case. It usually doesn't come at a convenient time or a planable <laughs> time. Uh, but the other things are tend, you know, tend to be elective type of cases where you can plan accordingly. Uh, and in addition, and this is where I think there's some differences in practice patterns and even with training, um, you know, when it comes to spine work, you know, again, all of my partners do things like vertebroplasty, for example. But, you know, I think where I'm around or available, I might do a little bit more than some of my other partners, uh, simply out of my own interest. And and frankly, they're also kind of in, in a way, you know, helping build up that aspect of my own practice by, you know, letting me do more of those cases. So I think that's kind of some of the elements that allows me to sort of fulfill that neuro, you know, interventional side of my um, practice. But that being said, I think, you know, no matter sort of where you are with neurointerventional, it's very unlikely that you're going to be doing 100% neurointerventional, whether you come from the traditional pathway or otherwise. So I think that's where it's quite complementary uh, to do body interventional procedures. You know, the head to toe type of practice pattern is really, you know, a great way to practice. And, and frankly, doing neurointerventional and then doing peripheral interventions and vice versa, I think help you and it's, it's mutually beneficial. Okay. Now, Sabine, what about you? How did you get started doing neuro IR and why? Uh, and one other question is, you know, does everybody in your practice do both body and neuro or was this a special project for you? Yeah, no. So uh, I took a body IR fellowship in, at Northwestern and which was completely body. And I never even considered to be doing neurointerventions, I always thought that was an elevated level of, of endovascular care that was beyond my league. But doing, you know, I, I selected, I decided to come back home to California uh, for this position at, at PIH. And one of the things that they primarily hired me for was to ramp up the interventional oncology program. And on the side note was, hey, you know, we would like to have our stroke covered, too. It's <laughs> all of my and I was like, OK, well, I guess so. And uh, uh, I just still to that to that point, I didn't really uh, decide to go to this job until near the end of my fellowship. So we had no cerebral training, uh, cerebral endovascular training. And was, it was the, the programs were completely separate at, at my at Northwestern. Anyways, I, you know, when I started at the job, it kind of became clear that all of us are, are, are doing stroke. Uh, the other four partners of mine were, are, are all body trained, but doing stroke. And one who was kind of the guy who trained everyone, he was, he was a body IR uh, trained uh, interventionalist who then ended up doing all neuro interventions in Vegas. So he trained everyone before I had come a couple of years before that. And when I had started at the job, it turned out to be something I loved. And I, I ended up just uh, jumping into all the procedures, all the neuro procedures, getting double scrubbed, any stroke that would come up. Well, you know, like Vinu mentioned, it, it's an emergent case that it happens at night or, or whatnot. I would just end up scrubbing in and if it's during the day or I would come in at night. And I learned the techniques from, from everyone. And ended up just loving the, the type of procedure. So it took me about a year after uh, in my in my job to get comfortable 
after doing about 30 or so cases. And finally, I had to, I had to satisfy a couple criteria as far as in order to do the stroke cases on my own and other neural interventions as well. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of my, my aspect of it where it's a little bit more unconventional. I really like Venus path, what ended up he doing it. It would have been nice to have a year of neuro, a formal neuro intervention training, but, uh, stroke is definitely, you can learn it and it's, it's, it's a very fun case to be able to do. I bet it, it certainly looks that way from things you post on Twitter. Uh, now, a couple yeah. of questions regarding that. Uh, one, how did that work from, you know, a credentialing and, you know, privilege standpoint at the, the hospitals where you're working? You know, when you have to fill those out, and you're requesting those procedures. Was that an issue that you hadn't done these before? Yeah. So they, they had created when they had started the stroke program at my hospital, they had created their own credentialing criteria as far as who could do stroke. And this was kind of multifaceted. And so that one reason of having that was that so no random person can come to the hospital and start doing stroke. And B, it's to create a, um, a, a standard of care. And so for me, it was, it was the, the standards that we had were to do about 20 or 25 cases that were assisted that I was primary assist on. And I would have to get, I would have to take a test and get 30 CME credits for, for stroke. So I, I just, I try, I had to satisfy all of that within a year. And, uh, it was a little bit tough, but that once I satisfied those criteria, then I could apply to get credentialed for stroke and do stroke on my own, uh, and if needed. Basically. Gotcha. Uh, that actually does sound like a lot. Uh, now, my next question yeah. is for both of you, and, and we'll just go ahead and continue with you first, Sabine. Uh, I was hoping you could tell me about the call arrangement as it works between, you know, neuro IR uh, and body. I mean, do you cover both at the same time, uh, or do you just take stroke call on its own? Yeah. Yeah, I forgot to answer your question earlier, but all our guys uh, cover both body and, and neuro interventions for call. And so, and just like, Vinu mentioned we have one guy who's who has who went ended up doing a neuro training fellowship. He was someone we hired about a year ago, and he now does a little bit more focused uh, neuro interventions. For example, more of our vertebral plasties and the complex aneurysms. He'll work up and do, and I can scrub in with him if, if needed or, or if I want to, and the timing permits. But. Uh, the way house call works now is, yeah, we, we take call all equally throughout the practice and we cover both neuro and, and body. And if it's something, you know, a lot of things like uh, aneurysm or things like that, that doesn't have to happen at night. Uh, that, that's something that you can do planning and kind of push off to the next day when these guys are around. But stroke, you know, all of us are comfortable coming in and doing now. Venue, is your arrangement similar? Yeah, v- exactly. Almost, you know, the same in the sense that, um, you know, all of the IRs cover for body and for neuro, you know, really when you look at neuro IR, there's actually only a couple of things that are genuine. You know, you need to be there within 20, 30 minute kind of emergencies, of course, ischemic stroke being one of them. Um, but a lot of them, you know, outside of maybe ischemic stroke or carotid blowout are sort of urgencies, you know, as Sabine was pointing out, you know, even a ruptured aneurysm, 
um, epistaxis, for example, not that you necessarily want to wait um, for, for an epistaxis case, but, you know, there's a lot of things that the ER, the ENT, you know, others can be sort of helping with before you get to the point where you're considering, you know, uh, embolization, for example. And so uh, I think that's kind of almost the, the breakdown in a sense. So even though, you know, my partners and myself, we all cover neuro and body, you obviously are doing the triage, you know, you're figuring out what are the things you genuinely have to come in for right away versus what are the things that are more of a, okay, we will consult on the patient in the morning, or we can, you know, get a CTA or something like that in the meantime. Um, because there, there's, you know, those sort of cases that certainly can wait. For the most part, outside of a, acute ischemic stroke, some cases of epistaxis, and, and, and the reason I say yeah. some is that most of them can be temporized with, you know, a rhino rocket, cautery, any number of, you know, endoscopic methods that the ENTs can use. So, it's it's pretty rare that somebody's coming in totally has failed that and is you know in a sense drowning in their own in their own um blood from the epistaxis so even those sort of cases tend to be able to to you know wait um but sometimes of course they may need that more emergent type of treatment um carotid blowout obviously is its own kind of different beast you know those are patients that you know can come in and i've seen cases where they may come in with this new kind of quote unquote pimple on their neck. And then within a few minutes, it blows out. And so, you know, that obviously requires very emergent um, treatment. Yeah. Uh, and often there's perhaps somebody even literally holding pressure while you're deploying the stent grafts. Um, but beyond those, you know, I think there's plenty of papers and data that look at um, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, for example. Um, you can come in and deal with that coil it, clip it. You could do that at two in the morning, but you know, there's plenty of data that shows that generally those patients will do okay, even if you wait till 7 a.m. And there's also, of course, a, a practicality. You know, you have to look at as you know, when you're covering both body and neurointerventional uh services, how much and and to what extent are you utilizing your staff? Because if you're beating up on the staff, bringing them in all hours of the night, and they're the same daytime staff that need to cover the routine and the elective type cases, then, you know, that's a practical matter you have to look at, you know, in terms of staff burnout. So that's part of, I think, that triage process that we all do, you know, same thing goes for the body interventional side of things. You don't come in for every GI bleed just because they're saying they're bleeding. You know, they go through a workup, they go through a resuscitation before you get to that point of saying, okay, I probably need to come in now versus this might be able to wait. Same goes for no, you. I, I, the epistaxis one, I, I enjoy epistaxis too, but I think I like I love embolizing uh, when I can, and so those I, I tend to come in if I do get called overnight. But again, you could totally temporize the bleeding with the nasal packing and, and come in the next day. Okay, so you know, I think one way we can go from here and combine uh, both the clinical and the technical aspects of what you guys are doing is. Um, you know, to have you kind of take this next question together and just to walk us through, um, you know, the algorithm from the time you get the phone call from the ER that says, you know, we've got a stroke patient. So in in our practice here, you know, we'll get a, um, you know, a page or in some cases, maybe they'll call us directly on our, our cell phone and say, OK, there's a acute ischemic stroke in the ER. And, and you know, we want to get, of course, as much of that preliminary information as possible in regards to last known well and what is their 
estimated NIH stroke score. You know, one thing I emphasize with the ER docs and the stroke response nurse is that, you know, it doesn't need to be a precise number. You know, in essence, what I'm looking for is, is it greater than six in most cases? You know, um, if you tell me it's 18 or you tell me it's 20, it's all the same as I'm, you know, as far as I'm concerned, because, okay, that's clearly significant deficit. Uh, so we look for, you know, those, those data elements, um, are they potentially a candidate for IVTPA? And hopefully they're getting that as quickly as possible. And then, you know, while you're gathering some of that information and looking at their non-contrast head CT, you, you know, we, we always look at the aspects, you know, score, because not just because I think it's, um, you know, included in all of the endovascular trials of the last few years, but, you know, really just sort of helps hone you in on perhaps what are the patients that the head CT itself doesn't look too good. And maybe that's one you are perhaps less likely to come in to do a thrombectomy on. But um, we've sort of modified the next step imaging uh, in the sense that anybody who shows up under six hours of last known well will and, and meeting a NIH stroke score of six or greater or a suspected vertebral basilar occlusion. Of course, those are, t- you know, a bit tough to diagnose in some cases. Um, they will get a CTA, you know, uh, as, as quickly as possible. Um, I think uh, one of the changes we're able to implement with our diagnostic colleagues and looking at the, the literature is to not wait for a creatinine or GFR. The data doesn't support it. So that was a change we've made over the last year. Uh, and that way, you, of course, are going to be able to hopefully diagnose that large artery occlusion and also look at the neck vessels to get a sense of what kind of access you might need. Uh, if they're beyond the six-hour window, and especially now with um, the advent of the uh, DAWN trial, which went out to 24 hours, and the Diffuse 3 data, which went out to 18 hours since last known well, uh, that's where I think perfusion imaging has made a better fit. Uh, in terms of trying to get some more specific patient selection. Uh, and then based on that neuroimaging, um, you know, we will make that decision about, you know, are we going to move forward with thrombectomy or not? Uh, in some cases, if I see on the non-contrast CT of the head, the hyperdense MCA, for example, right. then I already call the team in. You know, I, I'd rather them come in as quickly as possible. Yeah. The CTA is probably just going to confirm what I'm already seeing on the dry head. Um, so that's sort of those initial steps that we look for. Um, I think one sort of point of emphasis, uh, and it's a continual kind of education process, especially if there's new ER providers, since that's where most of these calls will come from, is that, you know, stroke doesn't end at the four and a half hour window because they're outside of the TPA window. You know, now, and especially with these extended thrombectomy trials, we have that potential to help a stroke patient even out to 24 hours since last known well. Yeah, okay. I, I completely agree. You know, Venus workup is, is very similar to how we do our patients at PIH. Uh, there's a couple of challenges that we face. And one, you know, just starting the program at first are people who are trying to start a stroke program. I mean, education is a huge uh, part of the stroke program, and that's really to the emergency room and the neurologist. Initially, when we tried to start our program, we thought that maybe we would get a call from the neurologist saying, okay, this patient is a candidate for stroke thrombectomy. But it's kind of hard, and that's, that's been a challenge because there's a lot that goes into that. And again, we pretty much get the call now if the, if the 
ER physician is pretty suspicious for a large vessel occlusion, we'll get a call, a heads-up call, and I'll be looking at the images and getting the history at the same time. Uh, as, as far as, you know, with the stroke scale, again, yeah, it's above six. I'm really just looking for double-digit numbers or, or, or in, the, in the high single numbers, and that'll be an inclusion criteria for me. I used to think of age was a kind of an issue that might, might make me not go for something, but I really look at the patient's baseline functional status. I mean, I've, I've had to treat some 95-year-olds that were independent at home. So age no longer is, is something that would deter me from going for a thrombectomy. Now, Sabine, uh, in, in our discussion before we started this, you gave me a really great idea for a question. And, and that's just to maybe go through, who are the patients that you do not treat? So the patients that I do not treat, we, we have gotten calls before, I mean, about a patient who is demented and they're in a nursing home and, and, and they're, they're 90, 90 plus years old and they have a MCA, a, a dense MCA sign. And maybe their aspects is not 10, but eight. And, and it's just a lot of things go into that where what are we actually doing? Are we just treating the image and getting the clot out? But then you have to think, what is their, what was their baseline, you know, functional status of their MRS score? And what is their score going to become after doing this procedure? So really, if I feel like if I were to uh, do the, do the procedure and not really get much gain as far as functional status goes, the risk is not worth it because this procedure as great as it is, comes with a lot of risk and uh, I've, I've seen it and it's scary, but it's, it, it, but it's also such a great procedure that you just have to select your patients carefully. Yeah, I, I agree. And Sabine, you know, brings up a lot of good points and Mike, you know, I think those are good questions. Who should we not pick? Cause uh, like any procedure what are the contraindications if you'll, you know, sort of lump it into that. Um, so he brought up one point, which is absolutely important Age is not necessarily, you know, a deterrent. Um, the the different endovascular trials did not necessarily exclude by age. What we do know in general is that patients who have a, a severe stroke who are greater than 80 years of age, in general, are, are not going to do as well as a younger patient might. But that alone doesn't mean that they shouldn't be offered every type of treatment possibility if, if they should be included, such, you know, so TPA and or thrombectomy. Um, the pre-stroke functional status is a very important point that Sabine brought up. Um, the MRS or the modified Rankin scale or Rankin score, uh, in essence, what we look for, and this definitely is in line with the 2015 AHA guidelines, which was, of course, derived by the thrombectomy trials, uh, a pre-stroke modified Rankin score of zero, meaning they were completely normal, completely independent, you know, including, of course, all the ADLs and IADLs. Uh, or a one at baseline. And one means generally the way I think of an MRS of one is a disability that for the most part, maybe only the patient really notices. Maybe from the outside, you might not be able to notice, but the patient probably notices there's something a little bit off about them. And whether that's from a prior stroke or some other disabling condition, whatever it might have been. Um, I think definitely the data supports not selecting patients who their pre-functional you know, stroke status was poor to begin with. Uh, Sabine brought up, for example, 
patients who are demented, um, you know, and, and, and this can be uh, an opportunity as far as for the education, both with the ER and with neurology, uh, but also it's, it's frankly making sure we're selecting the best patients as far as close to the guidelines or close to the literature and also offering them the best potential outcome. Because if you think about a demented patient from a nursing home who's mostly bed bound, so they're coming in not just with dementia and all the effects of that, but they're also coming in perhaps with an MRS of maybe four. And so if that's their baseline, you, you know, no matter what, with any kind of stroke thrombectomy, you never make them better than their baseline. And so simply you're just going to do a thrombectomy and return them at best to the exact same nursing home in the exact same condition. And at worst, of course, you'll have a bad outcome, you know, hemorrhage or you're hastening their death. And so that I think selection of patients for the procedure, uh, but at the same time, knowing the guidelines and knowing the literature. And as I you know, mentioned that the 2015 AHA guidelines on stroke thrombectomy is a good source to look at some of those things uh, as far as exclusionary criteria are important because as, if you're starting to incorporate this into the practice, um, I think it is important to really kind of select the best possible candidates for thrombectomy. And a lot of those factors are important. At the same time, you know, Sabine and I have, I'm sure, gone through this. Sometimes it's hard to actually get that information. Sometimes it really feels like yeah, you're pulling teeth, you know, to get that True. info out of the family. You know, what was this person like? I really need to know that because literally we may stop doing any further workup, you know, if you tell me certain things. And uh, a particular case comes to mind where, um, you know, myself and actually one of my partners was there with me as well. And finally, we got out of the patient's um, spouse that, well, no, he wasn't really in that good shape. You know, when they say, oh, he was okay or he's normal, I think that may be a relative thing in some some instances. And so they were saying, you know, that, well, they were going to get a hospital bed delivered to the home. And so as soon as I heard that, I said, okay, we need to stop the workup because this patient means that they're bed bound and requires nearly 24-7 care. That, to me, is an exclusionary criteria. Other thing to keep in mind is several cases that I've canceled is if they do fit within the TPA window and they get the TPA, I've seen patients, I mean, IV TPA works and I've seen patients get better. And if they're getting better, I will actually delay the case. I mean, if they, and if they get better, great. But if they start uh, getting symptoms back, then we'll take them back. But that, I've seen that happen at least a handful of times. And that would be another patient that I wouldn't just take to the IR suite to get the clot out because the TPA might be working. I, I think, you know, that that's sort of a, a good point to raise. I mean, there I'll actually differ with, with Sabine um, mm-hmm. in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I've definitely seen that. So I agree that that can occur. And, you know, prior to the 2015 trials in our practice here, we used to actually sort of include that, you know, maybe about a 15 or 20 minute period after getting IVTPA to sort of see if there's an effect. Um, but yeah. between the different thrombectomy trials, um, uh, you know, really in essence, the summary is, you know, don't wait. I mean, if you know there's a large artery occlusion, they may wax and wane in some cases. So sometimes it looks like they're starting to get better and then they don't. And so in our yeah. practice, um, I actually don't wait or not that I, I don't want to say I don't care, but it doesn't make a difference to the plan in the sense that if there's a large artery occlusion, 
I'm going to, you know, move forward with, you know, doing the thrombectomy. Uh, and in some cases, it, you know, including a couple of recent ones, which were inpatient stroke alerts uh, that we received, uh, you know, I was performing the thrombectomy at the time they're starting to hang the TPA, you know, and sometimes you might even rarely, I would say, yeah. but you might beat the TPA. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that also sort of ties into the current literature as far as, um, you know, well, if you're doing the thrombectomy, why give the TPA? Well, right now it's still the standard of care if somebody can get TPA. Um, there are some forthcoming trials that haven't yet started to ramp up, but probably, you know, between 2019 and 2020, we'll get some data out of some of the trials that are actually going to look to now compare intravenous TPA versus intraarterial therapy, um, which is, of yeah, course, maybe that next evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say essentially there's, there's if, if we're being called in, they're usually getting the TPA and there's this wait time naturally built in when we're getting the staff and room ready. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there's been just a couple of handful of times when the patient's coming down to the suite, they're starting to move their extremity. But I have seen them wax and wane and they, we've had to bring them back later. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, uh, Putting in a default wait time is definitely not the way to go. I mean, you want to get door, you want to get door to needle as, as quick as possible. Okay, so uh, one thing I want to do next, I mean, I think we have uh, a really great opportunity to uh, go through the technical differences between body and neurointerventional because we have two people with training in both. So, uh, starting with you, Sabine, uh, tell us what's different about neurovascular interventions above the neck compared to those in the body? What was the learning curve like? The learning curve was a little steep. I mean, I, for, for a standard anatomy and, and standard uh, aortic arch, it tends to be not too bad once you learn the different catheters and just this, this skill of, of catheterizing a, a high neck vessel. Uh, but it gets difficult with uh, once you start having you know, a two-vessel arch or arch that's very steep, a type 3 or type 2 arch. Uh, the types of catheters, I mean, I, I very infrequently in my fellowship use the SIM2 catheter or, um, you know, forming catheters in the arch and just learning uh, what goes there. And especially when you're trying to advance, you know, these neuro sheets are very floppy and they, they are able to be advanced coaxially really nicely, but Still, you run into issues when there's severe atherosclerosis or tortuosity. It can be pretty hard. Luckily, you know, my many of my cases have been done, you know, with the assistance, or I'm able to call in one of the guys who are more experienced to help me, and that 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 helped me learn a lot uh, in the beginning of my career. And uh, but that was the learning curve. I think once you get up, once you obtain stable access into the neck. The rest of the case is not hard, uh, except you have to learn the anatomy. I knew basic anatomy, but to learn, you know, where the wire could potentially go and, and disrupt the vessels, the smaller the vessels are in the brain, the more important they are. So you have to be really careful. And uh, learning the anatomy is, is something that I spent some time with. And other than that, uh, it, surprisingly, the wire likes to go where the clot is. And I guess that's why the clot went there in the first place. <laughs> yeah, so, and also uh, warn our listeners to take 
uh, what you just said with the grain of thought, I mean, a grain of salt, because, you know, what, what's easy for Sabine is not necessarily easy for everyone. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it seriously, it's the wire really, you know, once you're shown what to do and, and, and you get some experience with it, it's really, for me, was getting stable access in the neck and, and getting the stuff up there. And, and that was the part that was a learning curve and, uh, everything else, after doing it several times, like anything, uh, becomes easier. Uh, there's always stuff that, that comes up, but overall, it's something that it was daunting when I started. I was like, I was very scared of going above the neck. Uh, I was, I was nervous about it. I almost, our, my attendings almost taught me to be scared of it in, in training, but learning it, you know, you definitely become more comfortable and, and it's something not to be worried about. Yeah, I, I think uh, to echo, you know, a few of Sabine's points, you know, of course, one difference having done the formal fellowship, but nonetheless, I mean, the, the issues of the arch are definitely one, you know, aspect when it comes to certainly for stroke intervention. Uh, part of why, you know, we look, you know, carefully at that, at that CTA, we have it, of course, down through the arch. So you get a, a sense mm-hmm. and a plan. And also, you know, that comfort level with things like Simmons 2, there's... Simmons three and Simmons four catheters. Um, the, the last one, the Simmons four, I actually had never, ever used, um, until a few cases here in, in practice. And some of my senior partners who had done tons of cerebral angiography, you know, for them, they're comfortable with that. And, and obviously it's a extremely exaggerated and long Simmons shape. Um, a VTech catheter is another one, uh, that I've uh, found is, is quite helpful and can help me know get get you know good access into the neck um coming of course from the groin approach uh but i think there are some you know opportunities with a body background and and i know sabine has you know tweeted out a few cases of these sort of things where there's let's say a really bad type 3 arch and you know maybe you, you try for 15 minutes or something to, to get some kind of support up there. And it just, everything keeps herniating out as, as Sabine was pointing out, regardless of, you know, which sort of neuro guide sheath catheter, balloon guide catheter you're using, there's, there's just some limitations. And especially if the anatomy is extremely tortuous and exaggerated. Uh, and so sometimes this is where the body IR side of things may be helpful with things like radial approach, you know, uh, I think, you know, quite, quite a few of us in the body IR side of the world, you know, have gotten comfortable using radial approach for visceral interventions and UAEs and things like that. And so you get comfortable with something when it's a certainly a less stressful situation, you know, an oncology patient or a UAE, these are nice elective cases. And so when you build up that experience with something like radial, um, you know, intervention, when you need to pull it out of your toolbox for, let's say, a very difficult type three arch in an acute stroke scenario, you know, you can be very comfortable with it because you've done it during the day, you've done it in a very controlled situation. And now you're starting to think a little bit outside the box. And in fact, you know, on the neuro side of things and, and sort of makes sense, you know, we as body IRs have learned a lot from the cardiologists with radial access and now the neurointerventional guys, the sort of very formally trained or, or you know, typical neurointerventionalists are starting to look at radial as well. And so I know a couple of guys that are really starting to push the envelope with 
radial axis for neurointerventions. And so I think that evolution is going to happen in that direction as well. But um, yeah, I think Sabine's point about the access and getting up there and sort of knowing the feel or how to reform a Simmons and especially a lot of body interventional um, trainees or, or people who've been in practice, you know, on, on the sort of shorter end of the spectrum may not have had that experience. And so I think those are some of the things that, you know, you can read about in a book all day long, but ultimately you have to do some of them to get the feel of it. Now, another thing that to me at least appears uh, different from body IRs and, you know, in neuro, at least above uh, the neck, um, you know, emboli can be much more devastating. And so what do you do, uh, you know, for embolic protection, both, you know, in terms of clots and air? Okay, I'll go. So, uh, you know, with stroke and everything, I'm not using embolic protection devices. And there's already an embolus there. And, uh, you know, we do the distal embolic protection, at least. But there has been data to show that balloon guide catheters have a little bit better results. So, that's something that usually is our go-to now is a balloon guide catheter, and we're provide we're create, creating a reverse you know suction to reverse the blood flow and prevent distal embolization um, for that. The yeah the times when air you know we are using totally closed systems and um, being very attentive. I think on the body side we're not as attentive to air bubbles as much. I mean we're careful. But in neuro, you're pretty much double or quadruple careful. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's just something getting used to the setup. You know, there's a lot of two-ways. There's a lot of three-ways. Uh, there's lots of drips going on. But overall, it would be kind of nice to do that on the body side, but it's pretty much not really needed. Uh, I'll let Vinu uh, talk about the rest of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, Sabine pointed out a couple of, you know, really good thoughts. Number one, yeah, you know, as far as for stroke intervention, you know, we don't place and it's not, you know, part of, you know, the, the standard to put any kind of embolic protection device, you know, different, of course, than doing a carotid stenting uh, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he's absolutely correct. You know, the, the data from different trials as well as, well as some registries like the NASA registry, uh, have shown that uh, balloon guide catheters do decrease the rate of uh, distal emboli, you know, whether they're microemboli or more macroemboli that you can see but sort of not reach. Um, and so, you know, that that's, I think, one of the ways you can try to decrease the risk of um, new emboli relating to the thrombectomy. Uh, some of the disadvantages of the balloon guide catheter is that they can be a little bit stiffer. Certainly the older Mercy balloon guide catheter was very stiff. The newer ones, such mm-hmm. as the the cello and the Flowgate, um, are more flexible. The the newest version of the Flowgate, in fact, I think, does pretty well with not just type two yeah. arches, but even sometimes in type three arches. Um, but you know, when when there's sort of a doubt, or especially again that type three anatomy, you may have to consider something else like the Penumbra Neuron Max, uh, which is a very flexible, very trackable guide sheet, but it's not a balloon guide, so there's that trade off. Um, in terms of air, yeah, exactly. As Sabine said, you know, you're definitely trying to be very meticulous about, uh, you know, not having air bubbles in your syringes, um, watching your lines, having continuous flush lines that are heparinized. Um, you know, I don't, and, and again, the literature doesn't really support necessarily giving the patient heparin during a stroke thrombectomy. Um, uh, differently, 
though when I perform, for example, a, a, an elective diagnostic cerebral angiogram, you know, I give those patients heparin to try to reduce the risk of emboli related to the catheterization. Uh, I use a continuous drip system or continuous flush system on my catheter, where in essence, I sort of flip a three-way switch, do my contrast injection, and then flip back. And there's, so there's always something dripping at the tip of the catheter. And I think those sort of elective diagnostic angiogram cases are actually a good place to start with getting comfortable yeah. with continuous drips or doing double flushes, you know, all the sort of really good meticulous techniques, um, it, it, not only for the practitioner, but for the staff as well, you know, getting them very comfortable that, hey, there can't be any bubbles in this line or in this syringe. Uh, because as Sabine, you know, rightly pointed out, you know, in the periphery, if a little air bubble goes down the leg, there's zero consequence to that, you know, um, but in the brain, absolutely, it could it could cause a stroke. That being said, you know, this was um, part of a, a, a stroke course that I was faculty of this this summer in Australia. And that was a, a question that, you know, a few of the people in the audience had as well. You know, well, what if, you know, you get a little air bubble that goes out in the brain? Odds are, you know, uh, as, as sort of almost... Um, hypocritical as it may sound, it's probably okay. Um, you know, it usually it'll sort of just dissipate. And actually sometimes if you, uh, do a, an immediate post CT head, uh, you may actually see a few little air bubbles in vessels that you've yeah. recanalized because that was occluded. Now it's recanalized. And during that process, a little air bubble broke free and it goes into a distal cortical branch. Uh, by the next day it's completely gone. And oftentimes it actually doesn't have much clinical you know, significance, uh, if any. And so I think it probably ultimately is okay. But of course, again, starting with that sort of good meticulous technique and trying to do all the different things you can to eliminate that possibility is, is the ideal. Absolutely. Uh, my final question is for Sabine. Um, so, you know, SIR 2018 is coming to your home and I'm wondering <laughs> where we're going to have our Twitter party. <laughs> oh it's, it's already being planned i i think about it during my long hour commute 45 minutes hour commutes from the hospital and i think where we're gonna do it i have a couple good good uh good plans for us so don't you worry it's it's it, you guys will be pleasantly surprised okay good Ed, you know it was real originally just planning to tweet out your home address and right this whole webinar was really Really, to get yeah, that yeah. question it, in, it, it's it's just to get that in, and, and uh, there, there will definitely be a, a pre or post party at my place. There's there's no doubt. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, look, guys, I wanted to thank you both for joining us. This has been a fantastic discussion, just really enlightening content for people of all levels of training. Uh, so, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. And for our listeners, I just wanted to thank you all for joining us as well. And just to remind you to reach out to us at, uh, at underscore backtable.com and, and let us know what you want to hear. Um, for everyone else, uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.